0: You are on Line of Sight, a War Machine and Hordes podcast for new and experienced players. Hosted on the Line of Sight podcast network. Line of Sight is proud to host War Machine University, Brawl Machine, and Fallen Corvus, as well as numerous content creators like Field of Fire, Lightbringers, Brawler Bios, Vicarious Competition, Midnight Monpod, and Charge and Spike. You can find our content at loswarmachine.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 216 of Line of Sight. My name is Jaden, and this week's news and announcements primarily revolve around the continued lore drip that Privateer Press has been feeding us for the upcoming Orgoth faction. Aside from that, not much is going on, aside from the regular brawl machine and 75-point leagues happening in our Discord, which is linked in the show notes, and various Warfare Weekend qualifiers happening across the world. I'm alone this week for a special topic, which was chosen by our wonderful donor patron Phil, who has asked me to dive deep into the lore and story of one particular character from the Iron Kingdoms. This process was both fascinating and also immense, as the character known as both Gearshield and Gorshade crops up in many, many unexpected places. He's also influenced most of the narrative of the background story for War Machine. In this research, I have consulted many primary sources, and There are too many to find in a short period of time, so I am sure that I have missed pieces of the lore that would fit in neatly, and instead I've crafted a little bit of my own summation of events. If you would like an even more comprehensive look at this complicated and influential character, I highly recommend watching the video done by Servant of Nero on YouTube. I will link it in the show notes for this week's podcast. Sources for this story were found in the Oblivion campaign book, Forces of Cricks from Mark II, Forces of Retribution from Mark II, War Machine Vengeance, War Machine Legends, and No Quarter 71. With that in mind, let us embark on our story. Beginning, the void encompassed everything. Hostile whispers and malevolent shadows sparred across the incomprehensible distances, and the great chaos teemed with malice. Eventually, Mother Dunya came into being and created the world, organizing a space of spirits in its mirror for mortality, Urkayan and Caen. This sundered the void forced its chaos into patches of order. The great devour worm flew across the unending abyss of the void to be at her side, drawn to the vitality and life she gave off. When Dunya tired of him, she formed the hunter, who would be called Menoth, to chase the worm away. In his wake, he left humanity, a new life on Cayenne in his own image. In the due course of time, the wisest and greatest of the gods came into being. The divine court, they named themselves, eight in number. They grew in power and in grace and watched Can from their forest home in the spirit realm, the Veld. In this space, they crafted a great citadel, beautiful beyond mortal comprehension and patrolled the edges of ur and the great void. Their haven lay under constant threat from beasts and monsters of the spirit realm, and the might of the gods beat them back for time unmeasured. Soon enough, the divine court saw the works of Menoth and of the great fathers of rule, and wished to try their own hand at creating life. They studied and observed. They learned and took counsel together, and after much thought and care created the first of the elves. The divine court loved their creations and gave unto them the bounty of knowledge and resources they had at their disposal. For a time, at least, the court and their children knew peace. However, unknown to all the gods Virkhaen, those shadows and whispers from the beginning of time still lurked in the void, mad with jealousy over their inability to create life of their own. They had no mirror to their world as the gods did and they fumed with the unspent frustration of infinite time over their lack all they could gain were the spirited souls stolen from those mortals who passed into urcan and were not immediately given the protection of a god over time these shadows noticed the transportation of divine power from urcan to can as the divine court communicated back and forth with their progeny, and the spirit forest was discovered soon after. At first, the eight gods of the divine court assumed the new dangers were merely other forms of the shadow beasts that they had beat back since the beginning of their existence. Over many hundreds of years, they began to better understand the true form of their foe, and the court made the difficult decision to attempt to scry into the void. Narcissar Lassire threw her consciousness into the emptiness of space and saw entities of anger and rage that rivaled the court in power, with vast legions of souls pilfered from Urke and used to fill and fuel their powers. A quorum of the court decided to flee the danger rather than expend their strength answering it head-on and abruptly the Divine Court and their mortal followers began construction of a momentous gate spanning the void to connect the Erchaean Forest to the mortal world. This construction, though moving at a frantic pace by the measure of the gods, still took two hundred years to complete. And though it worked successfully and the gods did step through the gate and close it behind them, the unleashing of energy known as the Cataclysm destroyed thousands of lives and forever altered the elven nation. The gods were safe, but the price was beyond measure. Time passed, and the divine court began to diminish as their connection to their home was severed. After much time, they realized that they needed to return home or risk extinction, and they left their people to find a place where the veil between worlds was thinnest. During this sojourn, another sect of the shadowy infernals found their ways into power by influencing the monstrous Orgoth, and their pacts led the Orgoth to conquer the Iron Kingdoms, maintaining power for nearly two thousand years. Two important events during this time bear mentioning. The first involves Morrow and Thamar, the twin gods raised to divinity before the enslavement. In an effort to give humanity a chance for survival, Thamar realized that they would need the ability to manipulate reality through magic. With Morrow's approval, she approached the elven people, who turned her away. Their gods had left them already to attempt the return to Urcaean, and they would not share their magic with humanity. Enraged, Thamar sent her agents into Ios to seal secrets and histories, discovering the shadowy infernals through fragments of elven lore. She reached out to this sect, now fully realized as the Ninocrian Order, and brokered a deal. She would lead the Infernals to the Elven Gods, as well as pledge two-thirds of humanity's souls at a future date for humankind to gain access to magic. The Infernals agreed, and for several years Thamar tracked the Elven Gods across the world. When the Court finally completed the right to return themselves to Urkhaen, their transport was intercepted by the Ninocrian order, sending the divine court into their own shadowy realm. There, all but three of the gods were taken by the Infernals. Nisor had not returned with his kin, so he remained alive in Caen. Cyro was sent away at the outset of the ambush by Lassir's incredible power to be a shield to the elves and as a catalyst for the potential rebirth of the divine court. Lysir herself was thrown far from the fray by her consort Osiris, but she quickly succumbed to her wounds and infused the mantle of power she wore with her essence. Nisor, alive on Caen, felt his family's anguish and rushed to their aid, but came only in time to spirit away the mantle of Lysir along the same divine pathway that Syrah had been sent. He found her drifting in the void and shepherded her back to Caen. To stop their own extinction, both Syra and Nisor fell into a deep slumber when Nisor entombing himself in a block of impenetrable ice. The second event comes directly as a result of the tragedy that befell the divine court. Priests of the six fallen gods went insane as their conduits were ripped and defiled by the infernalist presence. Within a year of this event, humankind began to manifest arcane ability with the rising generation, giving hope to a people that had been subservient for generations. This peculiar timing would not go unnoticed by the Elven people. Many years passed before our story takes up its next thread and the Elven kingdoms waned. Syra had appeared a century after the Rivening and promptly disappeared into the fane of Lysir to be tended by her priests. The Elven children, already a rare group, grew even more sparse as babies were born without souls. These emotionless simulacra of life were a cause for grave concern, and the source of the affliction remained unknown, dancing out of reach of the greatest minds of the Iosan race. However, as the elves had further contact with humanity, they discovered that the first human magicians had been born shortly after the Rivening, and that as ever more humans grew powerful with magic, the rate of soulless children born to Ios increased. Two splinter sects of Iosan society rose in these centuries, as Syra languished and grew ever more weak. The Seekers wished to find the Vanished, the six gods who had disappeared right as the Rivening took hold of their priests. Their diligent searching did recover Nisor in his frozen state. The retribution of Syra took a more pragmatic approach to the problem, believing that if they could eliminate human magic users, they would be able to restore Syra to her former power and glory. Both were summarily outlawed, but both survived as many members of Ios heard the call to join one or the other and left its borders to increase the ranks of the cults. It is in this time of uncertainty, decisive action, and unfathomable mystery that we first meet our main player, Gearshild of House Vire. Little is known of his early life, though he was undoubtedly born to a high station within the house. By adulthood he had become master of the arcane, and begun delving into forbidden knowledge in a mad quest to right whatever wrongs had befallen his people. His forceful and charismatic personality won him many followers, and he was able to dissolve the ruling council of his house and replace them as sole Narcissor, or Emperor. His ambitions and drive to provide his people with salvation did not stop there, and though House Vire was not one of the five military houses of Ios. Gearshield outsovited his soldiers and warjacks with increasingly incredible weaponry. Also during this time, his library expanded as he sought knowledge from highly unusual places. Works of the cult of Thamar, the teachings of the priests of Mord, and even entire tomes penned by the hated human mages all found their way to his private library. He spurned no knowledge, regardless of its source. His grip on House Vire grew quickly into absolute dominion, with the members of the house opposed to his rule falling silent and his vocal supporters ardently taking their place. He tested the combat prowess of his troops regularly by raiding Trolkin encampments that encroached on Ios. His might on the battlefield grew legendary in this time as he led his companions from the front. He returned from these raids soaked in blood and covered with ichor. When the Trolchan banded together to try and oppose his armies, the Narcissor led the entirety of his house against them utterly destroying the hapless opposition. Off the battlefield, Gearshield's incredible balance of passion and articulation won him much admiration and respect from the other houses, despite his growing reputation for bloodlust. Gearshield believed strongly that purging all of humanity from Kayn was required in order to bring Syra back from the brink of death, and his fervor only grew with time. He discovered the existence of the Void, where elven souls went upon death, and a possible connection between this and the soulless children being born ever more often to the members of his race. As he prepared his house to set forth on his expulsion of humanity, events came to a sudden flashpoint when his cousin's wife, a well-loved member of House Vyre, gave birth to a soulless child. Geerschild ripped the newborn child from his mother and stormed to the High Council of Ios. He raged at them, calling them cowards, and dared them to set the entire nation of Ios at war against humankind. In his fevered ravings, he dashed the child's head against the floor, scattering its blood across the consulate court. His kinsmen eventually dragged him from the chamber, still screaming and calling for vengeance for the god of Syrah. When the consulate court issued a warrant for his arrest, he would not yield from his stronghold, and his troops opened fire on the emissaries of the court. This seemingly small conflict spread like wildfire through the nation. Gearshild's hold over his house was absolute, and he had brokered innumerable treaties with the smaller houses of Ios. Arrogance led the military houses to believe that they could quickly defeat House Vire, the group that previously had only been entrusted with the lore of their nation and had no reputation for bloodshed and violence. They were mistaken. gearshield marched on the capital sheer with an immense force of Myrmidons and troops, making a blistering attack on the walls as a diversion for himself and a small force of invaders to delve deeply into the center of the city. They took the ruling council captive, and once inside, the excellent defensive mechanisms and the assault on the outer walls kept Gearshield and his force well protected as a siege of many weeks began. Gearshield kept the council alive out of hubris, believing that he could force them to name him as Narcissor over the entire nation of Ios. The siege gave the military houses of the nation time to rally and attack House Vire's force as it lay siege to Sheer. and though the Vire myrmidons and troops were well trained and heavily armed, their position grew untenable. A strike force from the opposing houses rescued the council from Geerschild's clutches, and House Vier made a fighting retreat to their home city of Iris. As the war dragged on, the true level of abominations that Geerschild had performed came into scope. He had been plucking soulless and sold Iosin babies and children from their homes, and performing cruel, arcane experiments upon them to further his understanding of their curse. When House Sha'il discovered this, they pressed upon the rest of the nation to rescind the ban on the retribution of Syra and recall some of the most skilled warriors of in heritage to make an all-out assault on Iris. The attackers triumphed, and Lord Vyros Ni'ar dealt Gearshield a mortal blow as the pair fought far beneath Iris. As Gearshield's private guard drove back the Dawnlord, the bleeding Narcissor fled to the catacombs and caves beneath the city, and the rest of his souse summarily surrendered, with Gearshield himself presumed dead. However, Gearshield took flight to the lost city of Eversail, where he completed a ritual to transform into an eldritch, an undying mirror to elvenkind's former immortality. With his strength restored, he fled Ios, and over the next years found his way to the shores of Cricks. He pled his case to Lich Lord Asphyxius and swore empty oaths of service to Crix. Gearshield, now Gorshade, was given in charge of a new army. He dove deep into the necromantic lore of the Liches, growing to rival even the most accomplished of Crixian mages in a blisteringly short period of time. His understanding and mastery of the Void continued to grow as he specialized in raising spirits from that dark place to fight for him in the form of Bane Warriors and Bane Knights. As he delved ever deeper into the texts of ancient lore, Gorshade's perspective on the plight of his people changed. Perhaps humanity was not the enemy. Perhaps the elven gods needed to be slaughtered so that a new generation might rise in their place. He found mentions and scraps of lore that confirmed his suspicions. The elven pantheon remaining on Cayenne was holding back their power. They needed to be returned to their home, the Veld, in ur before the Iosans could truly be free. This idea took root deeply in his mind, and though he performed the act of a faithful general of the Dragon Father to perfection, ever his spies searched the world for news of where Nisor could be found. Cyro was too well guarded, and if the prophecies of his former people were to be believed, she was not long for the world. At last he found what he sought, and raced towards his prize under the pretext of capturing an aethank for Toruk. In order to separate the massive block of ice encasing the elven god from his rival Krix forces, Gorsche had made an allegiance with Everblight, turning on both his Crixian allies and recently negotiated Nis confederates. Nisor slipped through his fingers, however, and the undying ice god found his way to Korsk under the protection of the Morrowind Precursor Knights and Nis priests. With all alacrity, he made his way to the well-guarded city and slew the protectors, melting a path into the ice with a corrupted Menite relic. Once the god lay exposed, Gorshade tried with every ounce of his considerable power to slay the father of winter. Through all his mighty efforts, he barely managed to draw a bead of divine blood. With Cador and soldiers massing in sufficient numbers to challenge even his might, Gorshade stole the sword Voas from Nisor, earning a curse alongside it, and fled into the night. Over the next several years, Gorshade tried in vain to recover the vault holding Nisor. At every turn he was narrowly thwarted, until at last the physical body of the father of winter was claimed by the retribution of Syrah and spirited away to the same hallowed ground that held Syrah. Gorshade breached the barricades of the Iosan border with a blood sacrifice to cloak his undead flesh in Iosan blood and returned again to Eversail, where he would dominate the other eldritch living there and spur them to march on Sheer to strike down the gods once and for all. The abominable group of undead creatures breached the defenses of the capital, finding themselves within arm's reach of the sleeping gods. When Saira awoke, she and Nisor banished the other eldritch with their divine power, but Nisor's mark upon Gorshade gave Saira pause. Nisor had seen something unique in the once proud abomination, a combination of brilliance, fervor, and potential that could be the salvation of his race, in an act that would exhaust her nearly to the point of extinction, Syra forgave Gorshade and clothed him once more in the living flesh of an elf. Gearshild, the Forgiven, left his gods reborn in glory and splendor. Shortly thereafter, the Ninochrian Infernals invaded Cayenne, spurred on by the machinations of the Old Witch and the released Grimkrin. The wicked harvest was reaping the Infernalists at a pace too great for the Ninochrian Order to accept, and when they burst into the world, madness ensued. Ios found itself allied with the Scorn Empire, and Gearschild found his equal in brilliance and indomitable will in Lord Hexorus. The pair of them worked tirelessly to, to discover the nature of their infernal opponents, capturing the one known as Agathon and subjecting the squirming being to all manner of mortathurgical, necromantic, and arcane horrors. Gearschild wished to use the essence of the infernal to revive his dying gods. Hexorus wished to understand how to destroy the souls of the Scorn who had gone beyond. The pair succeeded in determining the first of their goals, but Agathon was crafty. The guardians of the gods and Sheer refused them entry with an infernal captured and yoked to their will, and as Hexorus and Gearshield cut down the defenders, Agathon feasted on the souls marked moments before their demise and fled to Zadaroth. As Gearshield and Hexorus pursued the infernal, the summoned Eldritch from Eversail followed them to serve. The machinations of Hexorus and Gearshield in their time together surpass mortal comprehension, and as the Archons, manifestations of the gods, began to take shape in Cayenne, the combined mortathurgical power and arcane brilliancy allowed Gearshield to fuse his consciousness with an Archon of the Void. His power grew, and so did the distrust of the other Iosan warcasters working with him. Falsier the Merciless, under the command of these other warriors, began to lay her runes of binding upon the Elven Archon, in secret. As the prospect of recapturing Agathon grew ever fainter, Gearshield entrusted another Mechanica to Ilara, now an Eldritch herself. He knew that if there was no way to revitalize the gods, then they must be sent to their home in the Veld of Urkhaen. To screen this treachery against his own people, Gearshield turned on his scorned allies, slaughtering them by the hundreds with his myrmidons and soldiers. In the aftermath of this treachery, Falcir bound Gearshield with her mighty runes, preparing to execute him for his part in damning their race, and Alara used the powerful artifact entrusted her by Gearschild to absorb the essences of the remaining two gods and send that power to the elven souls in the Veld. Was Gearschild correct? Had he truly saved the people of Ios, Or had he condemned them to ultimate destruction? Is Gearschild dead? Has he survived? What will become of his people, both living and undead, as the invaders of ancient times arrive now that their gods are gone? His story, and the story of the entire Iosin race continues to unfold, and not even the wise can see the ending.